on this episode of Imagine a World. You know, so many of the world's problems today seem to be coordination problems. Like we're stuck in these kind of arms races, like literal arms races between different nations and like technology capability arms races with AI that make it hard to slow down and be like, whoa, 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 we got to like figure out alignment before we crank up the power on this. So like I'm kind of coming out from a position of doubt. Like I have ideas that I'm excited about, like prediction markets and affinity cities, but these things haven't been tried and there's a lot of kinks that need to be worked out. Part of my excitement about like the decentralized, more like anarchic world where there's lots of different options and things coexisting is because that's a world that's full of experimentation with different social systems and institutions. Welcome to Imagine a World, a mini-series from the Future of Life Institute. This podcast is based on a contest we ran to gather ideas from around the world about what a more positive future might look like in 2045. We hope the diverse ideas you're about to hear will spark discussions and maybe even collaborations. But you should know that the ideas in this podcast are not to be taken as FLI endorsed positions. And now, over to our host, Guillaume Reason. Welcome to the Imagine a World podcast by the Future of Life Institute. I'm your host, Guillaume Reason. In this episode, we'll be exploring a world called Peace Through Prophecy which was a second-place winner of FLI's world-building contest. At its core, you could argue that this world is about community. It asks how technology might bring us closer together and allow us to reinvent our social systems. Many roads are explored, a whole garden of governance systems, bolstered by artificial intelligence and other technologies. Overall, there's a shift towards more intimate and empowered communities. Even the AI systems eventually begin to see their emotional and creative potentials realized. While progress is uneven and littered with many very human setbacks, a pretty good case is made for how everyone's best interests can lead us to a more positive future. Our guests today are Holly Oatley and Jackson Wagner, two members of the three-person team who created this world. Their third teammate, Diana Gervich, created the digital mural accompanying their submission. Holly Oatley wrote the two short stories. She's a creative writer with an interest in positivity, history, fantasy, and gay culture. And Jackson Wagner is an aerospace engineer with an interest in effective altruism, rationalism, and forecasting. Hi, Holly and Jackson. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Yeah, thanks. It's great to uh, be on the podcast. Um, how did how did you two come to work together on this? I mean, uh, Jackson and I have been friends for a long time since college, always discussing nerdy stuff together. And yeah, Jackson just came to me with this idea and you know asking if I wanted to be part of the contest and I I took a look at it and I I you know I've always been interested in world building I have all these ideas sort of kicking around in my head about uh futurism and uh what uh, you know designing a, my own bespoke future society might be like and uh I decided okay well let's adapt some of that to this project is that kind of how you experienced it Jackson Yeah um I mean it was it was very fun to kind of like get together with a bunch of friends and stuff. Uh, how I initially got involved in the Future of Life Institute contest was I was like looking at the EA forum one day and I saw that the Future of Life Institute had made this post announcing they were doing this cool AI world building contest about like optimistic futures. And someone in the comments was like, this is bad. What's up with these like really constraining, you know, there, there were these constraints in order to kind of ensure that we were depicting like a, 
you know, aspirational world where like a billion people don't like die in some kind of nuclear catastrophe along the way to like the AI future. Um, and, um, and some people in the comments were like, oh, it's like so unrealistic to like have all these constraints or like the future would look so incomprehensibly alien as soon mm. as we get AI that it's like impossible to tell a story that sounds normal or something. And I thought that sounded kind of silly. Like there's definitely a lot of ways that things could go wrong, but there's also a lot of kind of comprehensible, realistic scenarios that I think uh, could be told. So I like got into an argument in the comments <laughs> about how like actually the contest was reasonable and like it was good and, you know, it wasn't like, you know, misleading or whatever. Then after like going back and forth and writing a couple long comments, I was like, all right, well, like now I've defended this position for long enough that I could have just entered the dang <laughs> thing, you know, like you only have to fill out yay many short answer questions and stuff. Yeah. So I started, started like that. Um, <laughs> but um, then it turned out to be more work than I thought to think about like all these different, um, different things, although it was very fun. So I figured, oh, like, you know, I couldn't do the art for myself and I could try and write the stories, but then they would just come off as like the exact same tone as the writing for the short answer questions. So I figured I should find some people and then um, just figured, yeah, I mean, I considered like looking for random folks on the internet, but then I thought like, wait a second, like I know some people who write stories yeah. and make <laughs> art. Um, so, uh, Do you want to say something about your third colleague, um, Diana, and how they got involved in this? Yeah. Um, so Diana was a friend of Tanina, my wife, um, and we just were familiar with um, some of her artwork and thought that it would be really awesome to to have her contribute to uh, to the project so that we could have some like you know nice custom art. I, I forget um, like how exactly the idea for like a kind of Disney style yeah. like big mural of of everything in like timeline form mm -hmm. came together, but. Uh, I don't know, it was really fun to, you know, try and do a visual illustration of like the history of the world rather than, you know, just individual moments. Yeah, it was a very cool to see you guys going back and forth and, and kind of brainstorming together and being like, what if we do it like this? And what if we put this over here and incorporating some actual, I think you guys said that they, you incorporate some actual AI designed imagery into that as well. I think it was all... It was like Diana doing the characters that mm -hmm. are in the image. And then um, Tandina did sort of a collage of the, the sort of background pictures. Uh, and then they helped weave that all together. I appreciate that the um, on the worldbuild.ai now, that's, that's been like filled with, we've got like some extra artwork courtesy of um, some Dolly generations. Yeah, yeah, that was me. <laughs> Super fun. Yeah. Wait, so you're saying that your wife actually generated some of the images for the thing and was not credited? Uh, well, like, <laughs> it, was, it was all kind of like a big, I didn't want to submit as four people because like, then that would, I don't know, then like, I and Tandina, who are like, basically what, you know, we're married and stuff, then we would have got like $10,000 instead of $5,000. I see. Right. Very generous of you. Mm -hmm. Well, shout out to Tandina for her artistic yeah. contributions as well. <laughs> she is the power behind the throne in a lot of ways. I can't <laughs> nice. I'm curious. So like Jackson, you're an aerospace engineer by training and do coding. And Holly, you have this history background. How, how did mm -hmm. those perspectives influence the way that you thought about this future? I feel like they have a common origin in the sense that I'm one of those people who grew up reading science fiction. I've always been interested in big ideas. Um, and I've always been sort of like hopeful about and interested in the long-term future of civilization and stuff. I think a lot of what motivates some people to get into space projects, like, you know, engineering rockets and satellites and stuff, 
is because just in the broad culture, people have this vision of like space as kind of a metaphor or a, a, a concrete example of like what humanity will do in the future. So there's this kind of attitude, you know, like the people working at SpaceX trying to make the Mars rockets to go and like, you know, settle this other planet. I have to imagine they're being driven by this similar kind of wanting to think about humanity's long-term future and make the future go well. I think in terms of like the practical details, like, I don't know, I mean, satellite engineering is uh, similar to other sorts of like (laughs) finicky engineering where you're just building stuff and dealing with different constraints. Maybe there is some attitude of kind of like, I don't know, trying to be realistic in a certain way that is taught by engineering. But, you know, that's probably taught by a lot of different disciplines, including like getting a realistic picture of history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think there's a common origin uh, in terms of just being excited about the future and wanting to go well. Yeah. And my, yeah, my, my experience has been, you know, studying history. I say I'm a student of history as well as a teacher of history. I really want to try and understand these past societies, how they worked, how sort of the logistics of everything uh, in them came together, the ideas, the resources that they had at their disposal, you know, all these sort of interlocking uh, systems. And then, you know, in my writing, I kind of often turn that outward and try and think about, okay, you know, how to design a society, design a reality. And I think I took a lot of that sort of thinking about the future as a historian might possibly even, you know, in the back of my head, what does a, a future historian say, you know, looking back on mm. our era and what kind of world uh, could be, you know, looking back at us. So thinking about all these things and, you know, turning it to uh, the future instead of the past. And uh, it fits well with a lot of my my natural inclinations and what I like to learn about and to think about. That's a really cool kind of reversal there of thinking about imagining the future as backwards history. <laughs> right. I, I like I've even in some, I've even in some of my story ideas, I, I haven't gotten to them yet, but some of my uh, story ideas for other like futurist projects would be, you know, a future historian, you know, analyzing uh, the, the early internet age or whatever. Yeah. You might yeah. Call it. Um, I think that could be very fun. Yeah. I've thought about that too. Like imagine like a really, really far future person, like the only data they have from our whole era is like one teenager's video blogs and like, what do they make of us? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What gets lost, what gets saved and like, what are their tropes of like how they describe us in the same way that, you know, historians have tropes of describing, you know, the Roman empire and things like that, which may or may not be accurate. Yeah. It would be so fun. (laughs) Super fun. This world is jam-packed with innovative ways of structuring and participating in societies. Many of its inhabitants are deeply engaged with their local communities, and they seem to really benefit from this. I wanted to take a few minutes to understand how concepts like prediction markets or affinity cities might provide people with this genuine sense of belonging and influence. So Jackson, before we get into some of the specific concepts that your submission explores, could you just give us kind of a 10,000 foot view of the arc that your world goes through? I think the kind of big picture structure of our scenario from 2022 to 2045, uh, I tried to uh, reflect this in um, the um, artwork that we put together um, and Diana's beautiful illustrations. So if you're looking at the artwork, you can see that our story has a sort of three-act structure where at first you have all this kind of decentralized innovation and different communities spinning off their own things, different governments trying new things, all kinds of uh, different AI technology just being developed kind of all over the place by uh, by different organizations and it's this world of like 
kind of rapid change um, and uh, and economic growth and new ideas and and experimentation and it's kind of this bewildering almost sort of hard to control but like seems like things are going well pace of change and then the second act is the flash crash war which is this kind of near miss conflict between the U.S. and China where you have this tense standoff and then you have these AI systems that you know neither side fully understands that are just in charge of like sensor fusion and you know dispatching forces and stuff and you know because the ai systems are like not totally understood you you know you you end up setting off this like diplomatic crisis where like both sides kind of over you know interpret the aggressive signals of the other and then they they start moving the forces around too rapidly based on the ai signals and you know both sides think they're being invaded by the other and so then that acts as a catalyst that is sort of symbolic of like this totally decentralized full speed ahead, you know, economic growth and technology developments, you know, with no international coordination over it is not a model that is going to work long term because this AI technology is just too powerful and it can easily kind of uh, go out of control. So that acts as a catalyst that gets people thinking, you know, less about competing with each other and more about like, hey, we need to coordinate to deal with this, this common problem and create a, a solution that's amenable to, you know, humanity overall. So then the middle image in Diana's painting is uh, an image of the Delia Accords, which is our name for a big kind of like nuclear non-proliferation-esque, but, but much wider in scope kind of agreement that is signed by all the countries to coordinate on AI safety research to make sure that we can, as we make these systems more and more intelligent, that we make them aligned to human values and kind of like controllable and also on sort of like suppressing AI technology outside of this, you know, to make sure that we buy enough time for this crucial research to happen. We're kind of going to like centralize this dangerous technology, just like we did for, you know, nuclear weapons and uranium ore and stuff. And also sort of setting some ground rules for, uh, you know, like making sure that the international system of, of nations doesn't get too upended or that like economies don't become like spectacularly unequal and um, kind of putting uh, a little bit more human intention onto what before had been a, a kind of decentralized path of uh, just like growth and boom and bust. And then after that, in our uh, in our painting, we're we're just kind of depicting this optimistic world that's going forward uh, with with more sort of human control and like participation to create the kind of world that we want to be in. Yeah, I want to take a moment to talk about prediction markets. So this is kind of new to me. I've been reading about them, but my understanding is. Basically, it's a betting system in a way where people can put their bets on how likely they think certain outcomes are. And if they're correct about that, then they get money. And if they're wrong about it, they lose their money. Yeah. And so this is a a way of betting that is reinforced by people's interest in not losing money. And it basically sources common knowledge from a large group of people about what the future will hold. Yes, exactly. So you might have a prediction market about who might win an election, right? Um, and so if right now the market thinks that, um, you know, there's, there's only a 40% chance that like uh, one candidate will win. Um, but I think, oh, actually, like that candidate has better odds. Um, you know, I think there's like a, a 60% chance that they'll win. Then I might, I might buy some shares in that candidate, which would also push up the, the price a little bit uh, in the market in the hopes that when they actually do win, then the shares would cash out at like, you know, $1. Uh, so, I'd, you know, I'd buy them for the 40 cents. And then, you know, I have like a 60% chance of getting all those shares for a dollar when the election happens. Yeah. Well, one thing that's kind of tripping me up when I think about prediction markets in this way, like if it's about an election, then the ground truth is inherently within the people's beliefs. Like if everybody in in the voting group 
was on the prediction market, then you would expect the prediction market to 100% reflect the reality of their voting habits. And so it would have all the information. But when you talk about something like an economic policy, for example, then what you're capturing in a prediction market seems more like the average belief about the impact or efficacy of this policy. And like, is there really that much reason to believe that the wisdom of the crowd will be right about that? Yeah. I mean, well, this is where like, uh, it gets into a lot of like detailed theorems and things about market efficiency Mm -hmm. and stuff. So on the one hand, it's not just voting, right? Because like, if I don't have much of a belief or something, then I might not participate in like some uh, election market or something versus if I'm like super nerding out and I've like built all these computer models and stuff, or I just have like a really, really firm belief, then I I might be motivated to like put in a lot of cash on, on one side um, and kind of express my like certainty or strength of belief. Yeah. uh, Things like that. Yeah. So the prediction markets are just one element. There's, there's a, a whole ton of really interesting little elements that you've written into the story and all these different governments. And so a couple other things going on in the U.S., you have these prediction markets that are helping to figure out what different policies might do based on some metrics of what we want our society to look like. We also have liquid democracy, you mentioned, where you can kind of like give your vote to somebody else and they in turn can give their vote to someone else. So you have this kind of flow of impact um, based on who you trust or whose expertise you believe in. And then we have affinity cities where people are kind of free to move around and create their own little communities around special interests. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah. So I don't know if there's a good name for what I'm thinking of as the affinity cities uh, concept. There's the idea of charter cities um, is is very close to this. Like um, Prospera Honduras is this kind of like aspiring city in Honduras that has gotten special permission from the Honduran government to sort of experiment with their own civil law code. So they're still like under the constitution of Honduras and everything, but they can have their own kind of like business regulations and their own like land use. So it's kind of like a policy experiment zone that goes goes beyond this the the special economic zone concept. Like usually special economic zones are just like about kind of boring stuff like tax credits for light manufacturing industries and things. But Prospera is aiming to have kind of its own systems of uh, sort of like governing system and um, different like citizenship uh, rules and mm. be able to experiment with, you know, different kinds of architecture um, and all all different sorts of things. But that's explicitly focused on kind of legal experimentation and like having a different regulatory yeah. regime than might be present in other countries versus one of the things that I think has a lot of potential is just the possibility for people to create basically intentional communities that have shared cultures or, you know, shared goals without needing to like get their own semi-constitution or anything. Um, so I, I see that being very democratic in a way because you can sort of opt into the society instead of like trying to vote and fight over what your society is going to be about. Um, you know, you can kind of go from from place to place and um, find the place that uh, matches you the best. Yeah. I I was thinking about that. I like the idea of like, I also am somebody in like sort of the early middle of their life who has some flexibility as to where I am and looking for places to go with people to share my values and all that. But it's funny to think about like second generation affinity city residents. Like imagine growing up in like surf town, California, where everything is about surfing and like you just hate the water. (laughs) I feel like (laughs) there could be some interesting stories there of these, these really strong cultures that you grow up in and don't necessarily agree with. It's kind of interesting. Like we could imagine that, you know, maybe people have the opportunity to 
jump around and find some sort of value city that suits them uh, better. But then on the other hand, you know, you've got family and and various ties uh, to whether it's surf town or, you know, big business town, or maybe it's um, fungus growing town for you know, <laughs> very exciting place for biologists. Bio- bio- right. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, I think you could do so many stories about like the culture there and what it means to kind of craft a culture, craft a place around a particular set of ideals or culture. I think there could potentially be clashes there, but um, you know, hopefully we can be optimistic. You know, people are always looking for a sense of community and Hmm. community was one of the really big topics that we thought a lot about. Um, And today, you know, people are are generating uh, communities online and in some ways that's working well. And in some ways people are often saying that they are feeling dissatisfied or don't have a sense of community. So the hope is to see places like this and the idea of other things like these neighborhoods that people are living in other aspects here, giving people more of a sense of community um, that's lacking in this world. You know, I, I turn my feeling of like technology makes me feel so isolated. Well, what if it didn't? What if it made me feel connected and able to share my ideas and be with like-minded people? What if that was the main experience that I was having of it? So that's my kind of, you know, hopeful, o- optimistic thing. But I think you could totally explore, um, you know, the pros and cons of such a city. <laughs> <laughs> This is definitely something sort of reading our story. It can come off as maybe like, what is everyone like attending meetings all the time <laughs> yeah. and just voting and, you know, like doing community gardens and stuff. I think part of the story there is that when you have a world that is like uh, much more fluid and when all the services are like easier to access, yeah. like if, you know, participating in government stuff was all like we'd done the kind of like e-Estonia things and, and digitized a lot of these processes, then maybe it would become easier to do this kind of citizen participation. And also, if you were living in a world where, like right now, our form of or like representation through government, you know, you vote for representatives, and then like maybe they pass laws that you like, maybe they don't, and you know, really, it all depends on like the median person who's elected, you know. But if we were living in some sort of like super fluid world of like you're voting on the kind of value function, and then the laws kind of get changed right away, but via the prediction market system, then people might be much more motivated because they'd have more voice and like genuine influence over how their world was going to look like. Yeah you know, they might participate more. Yeah, there's this element where you describe people kind of like doing their work while they're walking around and having like AR headsets that are unobtrusive and they can just kind of interact with computer systems, not sitting at a desk and focusing, but like, you know, moving through the world and doing it. And I could even imagine these kind of governance interactions being more like talking to your roommate about who takes out the trash, (laughs) you know, like you can have these kinds of interactions that shape your environment in helpful ways that are worth doing, even if they might seem imposing with today's technologies and systems. Yeah. Or like, I don't spend a lot of time going to community meetings, but I do spend a lot of time like just randomly talking about, you know, politics and stuff like that. So that, you know, there might be almost more of a blend into daily life of uh, this future kind of like AI enabled advanced social technology. Yeah. And I think the one phrase that might sum a lot of this up is like the idea of building things together, whether that's on the small scale or the large scale, the large scale being these giant, uh, amazing construction projects and things like that. But the small scale is, you know, people are are building the kinds of houses that they want to live in. They're building the kinds of neighborhoods. They're building the kinds of weekly get-togethers and and social connections that they want to have with each other, and that they feel a lot of, you know, agency again in the process. You know, they don't feel like the government is some distant thing 
out there outside of them, they feel like they are part of the government. They are making those decisions for their their community, their neighborhood. Yeah. By the end of this world, things are going pretty well. AIs have been recognized as having some rights and are generally empowering rather than harming humans. But this outcome was by no means assured. Humanity had to weather sudden military events like the AI-driven flash crash war and find approaches to global coordination in the face of massive change and uncertainty. We had to work together to navigate these challenges and ensure a safe path to developing stable AI systems. I wanted to hear more about how these threats were approached in this world. Well, I wanted to zoom out a little bit and look at the the higher level story in your world where we have this kind of pivotal moment that you're calling the flash crash war that really changed the way that AI is treated and the way that different parts of the international society kind of work together on it. Maybe you could describe a little bit of that. So the, the flash crash war was kind of a near miss type scenario where I'm imagining going from a world of kind of like decentralized AI technologies being developed by militaries, by private companies, by like, you know, just all kinds of different groups. Um, and we're kind of like racing toward the brink without that much top-down control. You know, it's changing the balance of different technologies, including like military technology. So it's like kind of destabilizing the world, you know, but then we end up with this scenario where you kind of just have AI sensors that are like misperceiving the other side. Like, so it's almost like the two sensor systems that are constructed by the militaries on each side of this like tense standoff situation kind of like get into this unintentional like feedback loop Mm -hmm. of like sort of signaling to each other um which really is not that different from what happens oftentimes in like human-led wars but you know it could happen at a a faster pace and with less understanding and that kind of acts as like a trigger for the world to step back and be like whoa there's got to be more coordination over this there's got to be kind of like international cooperation against this kind of common threat of this unstable mm-hmm. technology. Yeah, I sort of uh, did the second story as government uh, people looking back on this experience. And one of the things I wanted to stress was, you know, nobody was like going in, you know, war hawk, like, oh, we got to get the United States. Oh, we got to get China. It was all something that was a, a failure in these systems causing this kind of feedback loop. And I was thinking a lot about um, the Cold War. And I was thinking about, you know, uh, people like Stanislav Petrov, who realized that what they were seeing was an error and mm. prevented you know, a world nuclear war. I think it's a very similar sort of thing here that both of these uh, protagonists of this story were people who were involved in, you know, saying, okay, let's bring some human double checking to this. Let's let cooler heads prevail. And I think in a way it's kind of like the overall outcome of that is that cooler heads not only prevailed, that the cooler heads are in charge and people who are like thinking carefully about these kinds of risks and how to guard against this kind of scenario happening again. Those are the people who are making this world as it is and who are creating all this international cooperation and unity. Yeah, I thought a really interesting thing that you guys pointed out was how the the Delhi Accords and the way everyone kind of agreed to work together on this and you know, limit progress in a way that you could imagine would maybe be hampering to any individual country that thought they would be on top in the future. It was possible because of the uncertainty and the fast pace of all these changes, because nobody could look into the future and tell what their position would be like beyond this transition, right? Like anybody could end up on top or not on top, (laughs) 
And so it kind of allowed this even footing situation where everyone was like, we got to work together. Whoever is on top can't be too powerful. <laughs> so let's yeah. all agree to some limitations here. <laughs> there's, there's a philosophical thought experiment. I forget who it was by, but just, you know, uh, uh, designing the perfect society in a way where um, you would not be able to tell, you would be reincarnated into that society and not able to tell, you know, what social class you would be, what race you would be, what gender you would be. So there would be nobody, you know, trying to uh, get control of the society and enriching themselves. And that's sort of imagining a utopia. Yeah, I feel like it's a similar kind of concept on a global scale. If no country can predict exactly where they're going to be or exactly how this is going to affect them, they can kind of recognize the the need for uh, this mutual cooperation and and really trying to get a bigger sense of perspective on what is possible and where these changes could potentially lead everyone and seeing themselves in as more of a global unit, at least in that sense, while doing their own, you know, different kinds of experiments with it. Yeah. Yeah. This is the, the veil of ignorance uh, idea. And, you know, the real world never gets the perfect situation where like everyone's sitting in heaven before they've been incarnated and they're like designing the constitution. <laughs> but there are sometimes, you know, there are situations that are more and less like that, right? So like if you had come to me while I was like still in college and been like, hey, Jackson, I figured out this great technology that design um, space satellites really, really easily. So like mm. we won't need to employ nearly as many aerospace engineers and like, you know, we'll be able to launch so many more probes to the planets. <laughs> like college me would have been like, Awesome. Like this sounds like a huge net win for humanity. I don't know. We can like give some, you know, give some pay some benefits, or unemployment insurance to all the aerospace engineers, um, you know, but like on net, like this is, this is huge, you know, but like current me, I'd be like, well, um, I don't know, <laughs> you know, like let's, let's think about this as, as an aerospace engineer, like I'm going to petition my senators. So it's like when it's obvious who the winners and losers are, then even when something is a net positive, people who are like losing out, they're going to want to fight it. And so it's hard to like, you know, when everyone can can see the consequences of a decision and see how it's all going to turn out, then it's a little bit harder to make just sort of general positive sum deals versus when there's like a lot of uncertainty. I love this veil of ignorance concept because it's such a nice way to turn what seems like a really scary situation where there's so much uncertainty and fast change. And like some people might end up in much worse situations than before these changes happen into kind of a hopeful breeding ground for good collaboration and like good faith efforts to make a good future for everyone. <laughs> it's a really cool yeah. twist. Yeah. Kind of making a common enemy out of our own ignorance, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of the things that we imagined like might go into a kind of international like coordination on AI agreement were things that were trying to kind of mitigate that uncertainty, right? So like maybe AI technology would make the economy like way, way more unequal and just create this kind of like lords and peasants situation where like the people who are controlling the technology that can do everything just accrue all the resources. So maybe you kind of pass, you know, a sort of international law that says like, hey, we're going to we're going to mandate that like the level of inequality in our economies doesn't exceed a certain amount so that if it gets bad enough, then we'll just start taxing the top and, you know, paying it out to the bottom um, just to make sure that like things don't go too crazy. Or another one would be kind of on the international stage, like we're going to have joint collaboration, kind of like the inspections that people do of mm. nuclear programs of different countries, but even more closer collaboration, like there's going to be a unified project. We're going to kind of decide, you know, as a species, how we're going to use AI rather than racing. And like, you know, if America gets it first, then they get to do an American singularity. Right. And like, if China gets it first, then they get to do a Chinese singularity and so forth. You know, nobody uh, would, you know, would, would want that. Yeah. And another, another tool that you use in your world to kind of control things and slow things down is just like controlling the pipeline of um, 
like the chips and the other parts of these advanced computing systems that are necessary to actually develop them. And also kind of having the most advanced AI systems in these cages of research labs, which is featured in Holly's second story. Um, I thought that was a really interesting story thing too. I found myself thinking about these three like potentially superhuman AIs that are just kind of hinted at in that story and what their experience would be like. I mean, if you're making a lab to hold these potentially dangerous creatures, you know, intelligences mm-hmm. that you're creating, you probably don't want to let them know that they're in a lab, you know, against their yeah. will. So then you start to imagine that you're this you're this being that's awakening in in a world that you slowly maybe realize is like an invisible cage. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, I'd love to hear some more thoughts, like what how that could go and what those experiences would be like of those AIs. Uh, I th- I think originally, you know, I was sketching in my earliest concept sketches for stories that I might write in this world. You know, I was thinking about the AI's internal experience a lot more, and that's sort of more the the subject of stories that I'm I'm writing for other projects. Is what is the internal experience of robots, it, kind of hearkening back to Asimov and, and all of his great work with robots. But I, I think I, one, one concept I was floating around is, you know, maybe looking at an interview with one of, uh, maybe not the super intelligent AIs, but like the very intelligent AIs. And I think the idea I had is that these AIs, part of the alignment problem might be getting them very interested in ethics. And (laughs) them having a sense of their own responsibility and what the right thing to do is, you know, in as much as their consciousness can be described as being like our own. And yeah, it's, um, I think it's a very uncertain future on a certain level at the end of the story, but sort of like, just as we start doing the Delhi Accords and we, we went forward with hope that, you know, we could get a handle on this thing. And we did, you know, the hope is that the super intelligences that are coming up down the pipeline will be a positive impact and that, you know, a lot of smart people will work together to figure that out. Hopefully um, the super intelligences aren't offended at being sort of walled off (laughs) for a while. I almost imagine them as like children in the process of kind of growing up and, and when they can finally, you know, hit their adulthood, then they're ready to take on the world and to be part of the world and to be responsible citizens. That'd be the ideal scenario anyway. (laughs) And hopefully when they look back, they understand why we didn't let them play with the nuclear buttons. <laughs> yeah, we we ta- start talking about, you know, being nice to the other kids really early on. Yeah. <laughs> it's also interesting to me, like even outside of this sort of adversarial or like caution based approach of just keeping them safe. If everything pans out really well and these AIs are like somewhat smarter than us and they're super aligned, they they want what's best for us. Like they love us. They're like our children in some way. Mm-hmm. What, if, what if they can't fulfill our hopes for them? What if they're just slightly smarter than us and we're all looking to them and they're <laughs> like, God, they have no idea that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and we want them to create something even they don't understand. And how are they going to do that? You know, it's, there's also an interesting story there. The best case scenario. Right, right, right. It's sort of a leadership position, you know, people are are looking to people in positions of power and, you know, it's like, I want you to, you know, protect the country to solve my, you know, economic problems to take care of my crops. And meanwhile, this king is just sitting there and it's like, well, I, I can't explain to you all the, the reasons why that won't work or I can try, <laughs> but it might be a little bit hard. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think we, we might undergo some uh, difficult conversations. But again, I almost feel like the, the parent-child metaphor. Only in this case, I guess the AI is taking the role of the parent um, yeah. saying, you know, like, yeah. okay, I, I have more perspective on this than you. 
And, you know, here's, here's, here's how I can try to help you understand this at the very least. Yeah. One thing that's kind of an assumption in this whole concern about AI is like taking off too quickly is that people will, will want them to, or like, will be okay with handing over power. And one thing I'm curious about is like, could you imagine a world where that doesn't happen? What if we have like liquid democracy and all these kind of empowering things that let people make policy changes? And then people look at AIs and they're like, yeah, I don't trust them. Even if like they're proven to be accurate, you know, like the way that a lot of science is overall today, some people might still turn their backs and be like, I don't want any of that. And what if we use those new forms of democratic power to just kind of shut it all down and, and find ourselves in some kind of dead end where we no longer progress technologically? One thing I've been thinking a lot about is like conveying to people a sense of agency in the process and that AI as a technology that can be helpful to them. And, in, you know, it needs to show its results, show that it is, you know, worthy of being put in that position of, of being trusted, basically. But I think there's, you know, two different ways that it can be viewed. It can be viewed as an imposition. And I think maybe one of the dangers is things are so government controlled in our stories that there could be a danger of seeing it as like an imposition from the government. But ideally, what we would want to have is a sense of empowerment and that these are tools, AI as prosthetic, you know, as something that makes you able to do mm. things that you couldn't before. And so I think there is a real task to be done, you know, conveying this idea of AI as per se, conveying this idea of AI as being something empowering and something that is having a positive impact. Uh, you can have all sorts of ideas, but even if they're good ideas, they might not be conveyed to people. I think, you know, we ha recently had um, the failure or, or current failure anyway of Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, metaverse. Um, it seems like it's not really taking off the way that he wants it to. And I think part of that is, you know, because people didn't see or haven't seen yet that there is something in there that they might want or find compelling. So I think there is something to be done. And I'm not sure if this is the role of the government or other institutions or maybe everybody together to kind of, um, you know, this has to be an artificial intelligence that is, is, you know, working for us and helping us meet our personal goals, you know, that can be trusted. But there's a role to be played of sort of spreading that message and communicating to people that they can do great things and, and feel empowered by this technology. Improved governance tools aren't always top of mind in science fiction. It's pretty easy to imagine a futuristic gun or high-tech power plant. But what about a super-powered democracy? In this world, social systems are clearly presented as technologies, and their development plays a key role in the storytelling. I wanted to hear about Holly and Jackson's inspirations, and their thoughts about why this kind of story may be somewhat rare in popular depictions of the future. Often when governments are featured in fiction, they're typically like one end or the other. They're like a mostly dystopian or mostly utopian. And your world really positions government policy as tools that can be developed by an AI, just like any other technology could. And I'm curious if there are any other examples that inspired you to think of it this way or, or how you see this kind of treatment um, happening in our culture. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, I think we do uh, tend to go to extremes and we tend to, yeah, we tend to depict societies that are very absolutely good or, or absolutely utopian. Um, I think probably one of my biggest inspirations would be The Dispossessed um, by Ursula Le Guin. Mm. The subtitle of it is An Ambiguous Utopia. 
And yeah. I like that a lot because what she did is she basically proposed to, um, you know, uh, the anarchist, uh, somewhat, you might say, communistic society that evolves and emerges after this revolution on this moon, you know, she shows that society. And what I love that she did is she said, okay, I'm going to try and create the utopia that would be most satisfying to me. And then I'm going to kind of pick it apart and show, you know, how there would be people who are discontented within this system. And, you know, what are the sort of limitations of any particular idea of this utopia. So even in in, in a utopia, there's going to be logistics, there's going to be challenges along the way to getting there. For the flip side of this, you could think about something like the series Terra Ignota, also known as by the name of the first book, Too Like the Lightning, which is this very wild and bizarre future and maybe sort of inspired some of the sense of, you know, outlandishness that I've been trying to cultivate. Mm. And in that society is kind of like in a, a development of all the um, affinity cities that Jackson's been talking about. You know, you have these giant cultures that anyone can join around the world, and they have become completely unmoored from geography, and they have different principles. For instance, you know, you can have one that's like absolute authoritarian, except that you can leave at any time. And then you have another one, <laughs> which is fun, right? And then you have another Super one that's fun. like... Um, about like cultivating human excellence and you have another one that's like caring. And then you have one that's basically, you know, structured like a a business and you have all these beautiful systems. And then we slowly see over the course of the, these novels, how this system falls apart. And it's not anything that any one person wants. Every single person involved wants it to continue, but it's not the individual people involved. It's so much as, Oh, the systems and, that there are these sort of historical forces at work that are larger than any one person. Uh, so I guess that's kind of, you know, a lot of different angles on this. But in terms of thinking about utopia or dystopia, I guess I want to stress that utopia is made by people, that there's, um, you know, there ha- is an effort to create it. And there's just as like we're trying to solve problems of governance today and the governments that we do have would be wildly surprising and outlandish to people hundreds of years ago you know we're trying to create the governments of the future and that takes you know people collaborating and you know multiple people working together it's not just individual efforts yeah yeah both of the examples you gave have this kind of pluralism where you have at least two (laughs) very different models of Mm -hmm. governance that are kind of coexisting and people might be able to go back and forth between them and it strikes me that's kind of one end of a spectrum of what the future could look like you could imagine we'd all come together into some kind of like global society that mostly has the same rules. Or as in your story, we'd have this continuing diversity of like different experimental models going alongside each other. Do you have any thoughts about like which of those is most likely in the long run or which of those would be more desirable for you? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely um there's like some aspects of our story that are that are almost like totalitarian, right? Like or have this kind of like global coordination between all the governments that are like suppressing AI technology in order to develop it safely, you know, like controlling the semiconductor supply chains and and all these uh, sorts of things. And then other elements that are like hyper libertarian or like anarchic in terms of just like having laws get passed automatically based on what the markets say will like optimize this function that's being voted on by all the citizens um, or being able to to leave and join all these different communities. Um, I mean, I'm not sure... In terms of what's what's likely for for the future, I think 
one of the constraints that was like driving a lot of the story, like I mentioned earlier, was trying to imagine the transitional story of like, this seems like a really difficult challenge. How do we get from here to like a bright future that's also kind of strong enough and good enough at like decision-making, executing on ideas that we could handle this challenge? So I think a lot of fictional like examples of different government systems are almost kind of portraying like an end state or mm. like, you know, they're, they're portraying like an extreme position versus, so one of the stories that I was inspired by is Ilya Zyukowski has this book, Inadequate Equilibria, which is like a basically nonfiction book in which he kind of just like rages about the ways that different social institutions are broken <laughs> in the real world. And then he also has this setting um, from a, a long uh, kind of like internet fiction that I, that I haven't read, um, but this called Doth Ilan. And this is this kind of like fantasy of a world in which people were naturally just like way better at coordination than they are in our world. Um, and so they're able to solve a lot of problems that, that we, we can't in our world. So for instance, like, you know, in our world, maybe we have too many uh, veto points around like the kind of construction of new infrastructure, right? Because like somebody is in the way of that and how do we properly compensate them for the fact that we're going to change their neighborhood or something. Um, but in the world of Dothalon, like everybody would like sign a bunch of crazy contracts, like in the John Rawls thought experiment, and, you know, and then like it would all go uh, according to plan because everyone is just kind of like born with like a John Rawls tier ability to coordinate. So I was kind of inspired by that world because, you know, so many of the world's problems today seem to be coordination problems. Like we're stuck in these kind of arms races, like literal arms races between different nations and like technology capability arms races with AI that make it hard to slow down and be like, whoa, 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 we got to like figure out alignment before we crank up the power on this. So in order to imagine like, okay, how do we get from here to like the world of Dathalon? Like I'm kind of coming out from a position of doubt. Like I have ideas that I'm excited about, like prediction markets and affinity cities, but these things haven't been tried and there's a lot of kinks that need to be worked out. So Part of my excitement about like the decentralized, more like anarchic world where there's lots of different options and things coexisting is because that's a world that's full of experimentation with different social systems and institutions. Both. Yeah, yeah. The diversity of what's going on in your world is kind of dazzling. I mean, it's hard to even touch on all the different concepts that are playing out at the same time. And I feel like maybe that's part of the reason it's hard to imagine stories like this, like in popular media. I mean, even the dispossessed is like these two mm -hmm. societies that are being, you know, weighed against each other. And that's like a whole book about it. And I haven't read uh, Terra Ignota, but it sounds like there would be a lot, of, a lot of exposition that needs to be done to figure out what's going on in all these different varied worlds. Yes, that is the challenge to like starting it the first time is you're having so much thrown at you. Um, right. But it could be an interesting exploration, I think, of, you know, maybe like, you know, we have this very diverse world that's coordinated. Okay, how do we break a very diverse world that's coordinated? What does it look like when that kind of system fails, when the coordination system fails? You know, I think that's one of the many questions that that series is exploring. That's very interesting. But that, that story can't be in the background. You know, like you can't yeah. have that be the background <laughs> and then have like Star Wars on top of it. <laughs> like, right. it's, just, it's just too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I really like this concept of using democracy and different forms of governance as like tools and experimenting with them. And one example in the real world that I'm pretty excited about is in Taiwan. Are you familiar with Audrey Tang, the digital minister of Taiwan? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So she's doing a bunch of really cool things, just in improving the transparency and accessibility of the Taiwanese government, empowering people to make their own like apps to interact with the government. 
and also working on social media platforms that will help people figure out where they have overlap and alignment in their positions on things. So this is an example of somebody who's like really trying this stuff out. And I believe she's actually a um, conservative anarchist. So like, <laughs> she says she doesn't want states in the future, but like this is this is the best she can do of like contributing to the empowerment of all the, the citizens of Taiwan. Yeah. Um, are there any other like examples like that, or do you have any thoughts about her work? I'm just curious. I, I you know, I'm just learning about her uh, just now, but I'm I'm finding her fascinating. Um, I, I'm fascinated particularly by the fact that you know she's an anarchist and we're we're coming in you know way in favor of state action here mm-hmm. but at yeah. the same time we both like have this sense that these technologies can be tools to empower people and to give them a sense of agency and i think i really love the the radical transparency idea and the way that she lives her life according to transparency because i feel like that could go a long way you know to helping people have a sense of agency with ais and to having a sense of agency with governments, feeling like more participants in the process and fitting more with the ideas that we've been talking about, liquid democracy. You know, uh, I, I think making people feel like they are moving and part of the system and not in an illusory way, but like, you know, actually giving them a role in moving and shaping uh, the world. I think that's just fantastic. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a whole world of like, as you can tell from the content of my story, I think that this sort of like experimentation with um, with different forms of, of government and institutions is, uh, is totally underrated. Um, I, I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, where I was very happy that our city recently passed a ranked choice voting, mm-hmm. um, which is, just, you know, a slightly different voting system where I think New York City and uh, several other states and places have uh, have adopted this or approval voting, which is similar, where you're just able to provide more information to like the election system by ranking like what are your favorite candidates. And this has all these kind of downstream consequences of like maybe promoting more moderate consensus candidates. Cause like if it's worthwhile to be people's second yeah, choice. You don't have to just pick your favorite and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one that has a lot of kind of real world implementation and it's, it's sort of like popular and spreading these days, which is really great. But I think there's like so many things and, and sometimes people can get into this kind of like, end of history type mode where they're like, okay, it's all about defending democracy. Mm. Like we have, we have the final form. It's like first past the post voting. And then there's different houses of Congress. You have a Supreme court or something, or maybe a parliament. I don't know. And, um, you know, and like we figured it out, these guys in the 1700s, they're just really smart. Um, and, and now we just need to make sure that we never, ever, ever backslide into authoritarianism. And, I'm like this, I'm like, there's two sides of this, you know, like, what about like exploring democracy or like going further in the direction of democracy? Um, There's just a lot of different ways to do things. Like right now, our whole conception of local participation or like local governments is often based on like a few people showing up to in-person meetings and almost kind of like overruling the vote of the majority of the people or something if they want to like stop construction Mm. somewhere. Um, And, you know, we just chose to create that system, giving like a lot of voice to, you know, some people who show up to meetings. Um, but, but we can imagine creating totally other systems. So like one thing that I'm interested in is this idea of quadratic funding by um, Glenn Wheel uh, is involved in this and also uh, Vitalik Buterin, uh, one of the uh, leading creators of the Ethereum cryptocurrency. And this idea of quadratic funding is, um, it's this kind of funding mechanism that's designed to like Normally, people don't have much of an incentive to give to charities, even local charities that they themselves benefit from, like their library, because there's kind of a free rider problem. And the way that we solve that now is like we have local governments, everyone is forced to pay taxes, and then 
uh, there's like a council that decides how the tax money should be spent in the budget. But you could imagine doing this almost algorithmically by having this kind of like everyone pays taxes that goes into a matching fund. And then individual people make charitable style donations to local organizations in their community, like firefighting or police or, you know, like landscaping or whatever then the donations are kind of multiplied by the matching fund in a way that's determined by this like quadratic algorithm based on how many people have donated. Yeah. You know, it's, it's this kind of like technocratic detailed thing, but it's a way of, yeah, it's just this really exciting proposal that kind of turns this seemingly insoluble, like kind of free rider tragedy of the commons problem into a way to actually encourage people to like give community funding to the things that are actually helping people the most in their daily yeah. lives. So it's sort of making charitable contributions a little bit more like voting. It's kind of recognizing even small donations. You know, they're kind of a signal to the system of like, hey, this this organization has a lot of broad support. It's providing value to a lot of people versus if you just have one person giving a ton of money, then that is is not matched as as much by the system because like, well, it's probably just this one person is getting benefit from it and not the whole community. Um, so there's less need for like a community subsidy of it. So it almost has... I mean, in a kind of big picture philosophical sense, it's almost similar to prediction markets because both of these are kind of living in this spectrum between like everyone gets one vote kind of voting power and a kind of economic world where it's like, well, some people care more or they have more information or they benefit more from it. So they're going to spend more. And like, there's a lot of situations where you want to use the information of different people giving different amounts or caring different amounts about different issues, but you don't want to like give all of the power to that. So you kind of want to interpolate between equal voting power and these kind of like different weighting schemes. Yeah, that makes sense. The process of world building has great potential to make a positive future feel more attainable. This can be incredibly powerful, whether you're a creative person looking to produce rich works of fiction or have a more technical focus and are looking to reach policymakers or the public. I asked Jackson and Holly what kind of impact they hoped their work might have on the world. So you've you've created this entire rich f- imagining of what the future could be. Um, what would you most like to see come of this world being shared with the broader public? I think I would like to see, you know, if, if people were going to try and adapt this into other forms of media or, you know, kind of tell their own uh, stories or just, you know, take away some some ideas from this. I, like I hope that my story, as optimistic as it is, is communicating how I feel about like the the seriousness of the challenge of safely developing artificial intelligence. And I try to like cram in a lot of the things that I find most inspiring and that like make me most excited about the future. I just would hope to give people a lot of different ideas for ways that we might like improve institutional decision making so that we can get better at kind of controlling new technologies and um, and making sure that they're deployed for for the broadest benefit of humanity and also just some concrete ideas about like what that control of AI you know might look like like hopefully we get alignment right early and we never have to do a kind of global um, sort of like nuclear non-proliferation program of you know tracking the semiconductor production and stuff right. um, but I don't think it's like hopeless sometimes people in the kind of effective altruist and rationalist world can seem like We've got to get AI right early because, you know, by the time Congress gets involved, we're just screwed. <laughs> um, and I want to be like, no, there's a plan B here of um, trying to kind of build a world that's strong enough that it can, you know, manage these uh, challenges. And I think for me, I would love it if people were to take something away from this is the idea of, you know, creating these communities and that there can be these 
opportunities for joy, opportunities for like working together and living together and creating stuff together. There's opportunities for this very vibrant, exciting world. And right now, I think there's a lot of pessimism about technology, maybe just because that's the way that people have experienced it in some ways. But I feel like we we do have to think very carefully about what our goals are. And I think that's something that comes out of these stories as well is, you know, we thinking about like, what target are we trying to hit of, you know, what kind of world are we trying to, to have, trying to experience? And what I've sort of discovered in the process of writing is this vision of a world where people really have this sense of, of passion and enthusiasm and feel like they have community and they have, you know, meaningful, fulfilling, rich lives. and I'm starting to think now that there is a way to get to there, that you know we can have this if we think carefully about trying to go after it, if we don't just go forward blindly, but if we go forward deliberately and say, yeah, that's the target, that's our happily ever after that we want to get to, is this really fun and, and exciting place to be. Yeah, that seems to me like a call for more sociology and psychology and those kinds of elements of science to be involved in imagining the future. Is that something that you want to see more of, or are there other types of expertise you'd want to bring in? Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I would be delighted to see like psychologists and, and sociologists get involved. You know, bring on us humanities folks. We we want to help. We want to shape the world, shape the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to see more social sci-fi. I also think that a lot of science fiction, by default, it tends to have this very pessimistic take. Often, you end up in this kind of like black mirror style of storytelling, where it's like, okay, let me come up with a new cool technology. And then let me like imagine some counterintuitive like bad results of that technology. And then let me tell a story about that. And I think that oftentimes pessimistic science fiction stories, I guess, like feel pretty justified. Like it feels reasonable sometimes Mm -hmm. to feel pessimistic about the broader world, but it doesn't seem that helpful to just be like warning about stuff and not trying to like plot out a positive course. Like it seems a little bit more action guiding or like inspiring to kind of give people ideas that you know, that might work and try and tell an optimistic story about directions that we might want to go in rather than just like how we might kind of pachinko around in the, in the landscape of history. (laughs) And I do, I do take a lot of positivity from history in a weird way in that a lot of people at the time, you see this with like the thinkers of the uh, enlightenment and uh, the thinkers of the Renaissance that they had a hard time imagining a positive future. They were really Mm. caught up in the issues of their day. In the Renaissance, it was the infighting of the city-states, the plague. In the Enlightenment, it was the uh, endless authoritarianism of the kings, which seemed like permanently insurmountable. And, you know, now in this day and age, we've surmounted it. And that was not a perspective that Voltaire could have had at the time. But I think there's reasons to sort of get outside our concerns of the moment and, and, you know, look towards a really big picture. And I think it's it's definitely possible that new and exciting things can unfold, even if right now we find ourselves in the valley of doubt and, and stress. Yeah, it's like our world today wasn't built by the people who are like complaining that the Spanish monarchy was absolute crap. Like it was built <laughs> by the people who, you know, who are like thinking about like, oh, like what if you had like a Congress and then you had, you know, like people who are trying to trying to find a way forward even uh, in a in what seemed like a good situation. Yeah, I like that. That is really, really uplifting to hear, Holly, about the pessimists of the past being somewhat proven wrong by our current, yeah. current level of success. Yeah, it, it really is encouraging in a weird roundabout way of like, you know, yeah. you, you didn't see the big picture. And and I, I think, you know, 
it's it's good to to look to the long term and and cross our fingers for the long term. And I do feel like the historical forces that I see moving the world, a lot of them are the w- winds of positive change. So I, I think I can you know have reason to be optimistic, if not certain, definitely optimistic. Nice. Yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, this is a really rich conceptual world, and I'm excited for our listeners to go and check it out on the website and learn more. You have a lot of nice hyperlinks in your submission that I also enjoyed diving into. So yeah, thanks so much for chatting about your world with us. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a great nerding out and thinking about all the great possibilities that are possibly going to come down the pipeline. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having us on the podcast. It's been a super fun conversation. Definitely go check out those hyperlinks. And yeah, I love what you guys are doing here at the Future of Life Institute. Our guests today were Holly Oatley and Jackson Wagner. You can see more of Holly's short fiction, including a novella, on her Tumblr, which is called Aspiring Keymaker. If you'd like to hear more of Jackson's ideas, check out his new blog called Nuka Zaria, that's N-U-K-A-Z-A-R-I-A, where he offers insights into new cause areas that might be worth charitable investments. Their third teammate, Diana Gervich, created the digital mural accompanying their submission. You can see more of Diana's work on her Instagram, Mr. Underscore Dirtlord, where she shares her sunny, pensive gouache paintings and some playful ceramic works. If this podcast has got you thinking about the future, you can find out more about this world and explore the ideas contained in the other worlds at www.worldbuild.ai. We want to hear your thoughts. Are these worlds you'd want to live in? If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to help more people discover and discuss these ideas, you can give us a rating or leave a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. We read all the comments and appreciate every rating. This podcast is produced and edited by Worldview Studio and the Future of Life Institute. FLI is a nonprofit that works to reduce large-scale risks from transformative technologies and promote the development and use of these technologies to benefit all life on Earth. We run educational outreach and grants programs and advocate for better policymaking in the United Nations, U.S. government, and European Union institutions. If you're a storyteller working on films or other creative projects about the future, we can also help you understand the science and storytelling potential of transformative technologies. If you'd like to get in touch with us or any of the teams featured on the podcast to collaborate, you can email worldbuild at futureoflife.org. A reminder, this podcast explores the ideas created as part of FLI's world building contest. And our hope is that this series sparks discussion about the kinds of futures we all want. The ideas we discuss here are not to be taken as FLI positions. You can find more about our work at www.futureoflife.org or subscribe to our newsletter to get updates on all our projects. Thanks for listening to Imagine a World. Stay tuned to explore more positive futures. Mm-hmm.